Turn with me to 1 Timothy 4, and we're going to look at verses 6 through 12. 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 12. And we're going to start building some steam now in our series that we're calling Well Done, Good and Faithful Church. In 1 Timothy 4, 5 and 6. And we've said this is our spiritual preparation for moving to our new facility in a few months. We have a responsibility to be an excellent church to the honor and glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, when we did verses 1 through 5, we saw this is a very sobering passage about being wary of false teachers, of those who would mislead. We even saw a warning to stay away from teaching such as a legalistic asceticism, that is denying yourself normal earthly pleasures which are already given by God as a gift, uh, things such as marriage or even certain foods. And so our emphasis was that it's vitally important for the local church to understand the gospel, the true gospel, and stay grounded very heavily in the good news of the cross. But now, like the great teacher that he is, after telling us what not to do, Paul tells us what to do instead. And in these next verses, verses 6 through 12, they really almost read like a how-to of living the basics of the Christian life, how to live the Christian life. But I do want to point out that what we're going to see here is anything but sentimental or emotional. This is not sentimental Christianity. This is not emotional Christianity. In other words, what you will not find here is typical Christian mythological advice such as just follow Jesus and he'll be your best friend. Why is that wrong? Because that makes you the center of the relationship. You won't find things like God is your co-pilot now. Again, that's a relationship of two equals. You won't find my least favorite saying in all of Christian history, let go and let God. What does that even mean? How about this one? Have a Jesus-filled day. That implies I need to feel a certain emotion all the time. Or this one, God will never give you more than you can handle. Yes, he will. (laughs) The Bible doesn't say that. He doesn't want you to handle anything. He wants to handle it for you. If God only gave me what I can handle, he wouldn't give me anything. These are trite sayings that help nobody and they contribute to the shallowness of American evangelicalism. What we're going to see instead in verses 6 through 12 is anything but shallow, sentimental, emotion-based Christianity. Instead, what we're going to see is a meaty section that we'll call leading by example. Leading by example, and that's our topic today. Now, I do have to kind of take a little uh, segue here, a little uh, side note rather. There's a friendly debate over this passage, and the debate is basically this. Is this a section in which Paul is telling Timothy how to shepherd the flock of God, or is it a section that applies to all of us as well? In other words, is this primarily directed to pastors, to elders, to shepherds? It seems like it could be. Verse 6 says, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So Timothy is to be teaching things to the body Verse 11 seems to indicate as well, command and teach these things. And so those two verses would seem to indicate, yes, this is to train pastors and shepherds. 
Or is it a section which applies to all of us as the church of Jesus Christ? Verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example. Oh, all the things that Timothy is to do to pursue the Lord are the very things that the church is to imitate. So which one is it? Is it meant to teach the pastors, the shepherds, the elders, or is it meant to teach the the whole church? Well, the short answer is take your pick. Take your pick. Timothy is to be doing certain things, and in almost all of those things, the church is supposed to imitate him. I could very easily and rightly preach this message to a room full of pastors and shepherds, but you can't get away from the fact that this charge to Timothy is to be an example in all these things to the flock. So I'm going to take the angle that this text helps us understand how to lead by example in the church of Jesus Christ. How to lead by example in the church of Jesus Christ. And that's all of us. Because by definition, if we have a church filled with people leading by example, then that's a healthy and a dynamic and an effective church. Now, I've purposefully pointed out that there's all this, this almost paradox of Paul telling Timothy how to be a good minister of the gospel, yet he's telling them to set an example in all of these things. I pointed this out on purpose because there, there is not supposed to be this vast chasm. There's not supposed to be this grand canyon between the so-called clergy of the church and the so-called laity of the church. There, there's not supposed to be The idea that the pastors are the ones who really study their Bibles. They're the ones who really spend their time in prayer and seek the Lord. And the church members just kind of grab some of the crumbs and yet go live regular secular lives anyway. No, we're all in the church together. Some are shepherds and all of us are sheep. But while I could preach a sermon to a group of pastors from this exact text on how to be a pastor... I believe it equally addresses how to lead by example, which is what we all are to do. And I do have one little secret weapon to support this view, that even if the text is almost directed exclusively to leadership, Paul told leadership, 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So whatever the shepherds are learning in regards to the ministry, all are to know this is supposed to spread exponentially. So how do you lead by example? And again, the implication is that if we have a church with lots and lots of members leading by example, the church is strengthened, the church is effective. I want to keep this as simple and straightforward as I can, so I just want to very simply identify four ways that you as an individual Christian can lead by example. And as we go through these four, you're going to notice a little theme. I I won't tell you what it is yet. You'll kind of see it as we go. But the first way to lead by example, we'll say, is to feast on the truth. Feast on the truth. Verse 6, once again, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. That if Timothy will faithfully teach the things Paul has just written about in the previous section, He's a good servant of Christ. And then Paul notes that the reason Timothy can teach these things, why why is he able to? He's been trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you followed. And this idea of training is expressed in several different ways throughout these verses. Now, it does almost look like at first glance that Paul is being redundant. Maybe he's just emphasizing this. 
for emphasis that, that Timothy is to be being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine. Seems like that's the same thing. Well, actually, it's not redundant, and it provides us a very important distinction. The words of the faith, first and foremost, speak of the singular source of specific revelation from God, the Scriptures, the Bible. This is the only source of knowledge of God that we have. Those are the words of the faith. And then, the good doctrine, that speaks of the teaching and the understanding we derive from the Scriptures. Words of the faith, the Bible, the good doctrine, the conclusions we arrive at from Scripture. And that is a very, very important distinction. And in fact, even the order is important. We don't take a theological system and apply it to Scripture. That's backwards. Instead, theological conclusions are drawn from Scripture. And if you have a large enough set of theological conclusions, we, some might call that a theological system, But those conclusions must be derived from simply observing the Scripture. In fact, just to give you kind of an interesting paradoxical example, one theology book I have on my shelf clearly comes from a specific theological bent. It has a lot of helpful features, has many things we would agree with and we would say amen to. The book is basically an attempt to explain this theological system and it does a good job of explaining the system. And listen carefully, the author calls it a man-made system and we would rightly agree with him when he says this, quote, First, these systems can be helpful so long as the system is rooted in Scripture. The idea is never to have the system drive the Bible, but the the Bible drive the system. Scripture is the engine, the system is the body. We go along for the ride. We would totally agree with that. That is true. Being trained in the words of the faith, that is the knowledge of the actual word of God and the good doctrine, which is the results of the study of the word of God, the theological conclusions drawn from scripture. The problem comes when two pages earlier, three times in three different paragraphs on one page, he says this exact quote, quote, this system of theology is a system of biblical interpretation. This system of theology is a system of biblical interpretation. This system of theology is a system of biblical interpretation. Then he changes metaphors. He says that this system is, quote, like a map you pull out to figure out where you're going in the Bible. Well, which one is it? Is a theological system the body of the car that just rides along, or is it the map that tells you where to go? In fact, 140 pages later, he says that this particular system of theology is, quote, a way of reading the Bible. You cannot have it both ways. You can't say that the Bible creates your theology and your theology tells you how to navigate the Bible. You can't have it both ways. It's not theology that tells us how to navigate the Bible. It's our hermeneutics. Our Bible study methods. What's our Bible study method? It's very simple. Observe the text and listen to what it says. We can use other bigger, fancier words like historical, grammatical, hermeneutics. It's not a theological system filled with presuppositions that tells us how to understand Scripture. It is our ability to simply observe what the text says, from which we then derive good doctrine. In fact, in the very second paragraph of this book, The theologian states that this particular system of theology is based upon presuppositions, assumptions 
that are brought to the Bible first. In fact, it's precisely that sort of faulty reasoning that makes it potentially dangerous to read a lot of theology before you've ever read the Bible and to derive interpretation from a theological position. So the order is clear. You hear the Word and the Word of God is interpreted using sound principles of simply observing the text and letting it speak for itself. And then doctrinal conclusions are reached. Now that may seem like splitting hairs, but to say I have a belief system that I bring to the Bible is wrong. To say the Bible has created my belief system is correct. You see the difference between those two? It's a big difference. And in this particular setting, Paul says that Timothy is being trained. This is not past tense. It's the only time he uses this word in the New Testament. It's a compound Greek word that means to be nourished all the time. It's a, it's a food-related word. And it's what's called a present tense participle. It's a, what we would call an ing verb. It's happening over and over again. It's repeated. It's continual. Let me put it to you this way. As far as Timothy setting an example for all of us, the Word of God is not driving through Taco Bell to get a little snack to, to tide you over. The Word of God is Thanksgiving dinner every day. You open it, you listen to it, you hear it preached, you soak the truths in. I, there are multiple people in our church that listen to three, four, five, six hundred sermons a year because they're carrying their Thanksgiving plate. You don't come to the Word of God with, who, wh- why do we have salad plates? What are those even for? <laughs> you don't come to the Word of God with a salad plate. You come to the Word of God with a platter that takes two hands to hold those Those Thanksgiving dinner-sized plates that have to be tested by engineers for load-bearing capacity. (laughs) That's how you come to the Word. I want you to notice something here. Timothy is to be about the business of studying the Word, knowing his theology, but remember, he's to set an example. I get to have the privilege of spending the largest portion of my week immersed in the Scriptures for your sake. It is not only my joy, it is my duty. It is my duty to dig and to dig deeply. But I want you to notice something. The purpose for a shepherd spending time in the Word of God is not so that you won't have to, but precisely to set an example for you. One pastor said this, If my whole congregation was studying the Bible the way I do, I'd be out of a job. Wrong. If the whole congregation was studying the Bible the way a pastor does, the church would explode with effectiveness. And by the way, that makes for better preachers because when I know that all of you are studying, that lights a fire under me because I can't bring cottage cheese here. We have to have meat. You are to feast on the truth. I understand in our world there is a need for salad plates, but when it comes to the Bible, leave them out. Bring the big platter. First way to lead by example, feast on the truth. There's a second way. We'll call this one, stop eating spiritual junk food. Stop eating spiritual junk food. Verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. A more wooden translation of these few Greek words would say, worldly fables fit only for old women. This is actually the very phrase where we get the idea of old wives' tales. 
where you have this picture of a bunch of ungodly old women sitting around just making stuff up. It speaks of exaggeration. It speaks of boasting. It speaks of of saying things that are passed off as truth just because you think they're true. Fictitious stories. Seemingly awe-inspiring supposed new discoveries about the Bible. These secrets that only one person has discovered. Give you a couple of examples. Uh, things like the Hebrew Roots Cult, which says that there are secret messages in the Hebrew letters, and that's what you really have to, to understand. That the actual message of the Old Testament is irrelevant. You have to dig into the secret code that only like 11 people know. Or things like the Da Vinci Code, that supposedly gives the real secret to unlocking the key to knowing who Jesus really was, and that he wasn't the person actually presented in the Gospels. Or things like exaggerated numerology, the the belief that all the numbers in the Bible have these hidden secrets. Now, definitely certain numbers represent certain concepts, but we only know that because the Bible tells us that. This is why, as much as we can in our preaching, we do our best to explain how we arrive at conclusions. Because otherwise, you might be tempted to believe me just because I'm the one saying it. That's the wrong reason. I'd like to spend just a moment here, actually a few minutes, kind of diving into the weeds of some details. But I have a spiritual purpose for you. So when in about five minutes you're wondering, why are we doing this? I promise I will tell you why. There's a reason. So I want to take you on a little journey together about these irreverent, silly myths. I'd like to give you an example of irreverent, silly myths that seem to be gaining a lot of traction right now in Christian circles. And I I don't always see the need to name names, but this particular teacher um, wants everyone to know that he's the one behind these views. That seems to be one of his goals in life, so I don't mind naming his name because he's named his own name. His name is Dr. Michael Heiser. Michael Heiser is the executive director of the Awakening School of Theology. The Awakening School of Theology has a motto. Their motto is, the Bible is, a, this is a quote, the Bible is about God's desire for a natural and a supernatural family. Translation, the Bible is about the fact that God has needs that we meet. That's a very difficult position to support scripturally since the Bible never says that. That says that God has a need and you're meeting his need. The basic premise of the school is that without their amazing high-level understanding, you cannot possibly interpret the Bible without their help. Basically, the entire course curriculum is based on Dr. Heiser's book called The Unseen Realm, Recovering the Supernatural Worldview of the Bible. Now, to be very clear, he has a lot of great things to say that I would agree with. We would all agree with. But the basic message of this book, The Unseen Realm, is that the Bible is not that much about Christ and much more about a heavenly ruling council that will someday form an upper and lower house ruling heaven and earth. His evidence for this is extremely shaky and his de-emphasis on Christ is very concerning. But this thing is taking off like wildfire. And to create these views, he has to rely on many pieces of so-called evidence which conveniently only he has ever discovered. And I'll just give you two of them. We don't have time to go into a bunch. I'll give you two of them. First of all, Dr. Heiser uses Psalm 82.1 
to come to a completely unique conclusion, which frankly has rocked the evangelical world at a lot of levels. Psalm 82.1 says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. We've read this verse out loud. We've talked about this before here. And we understand this. The, the use of the term gods, is a, there's a broad use to this. It's used of human administrators, such as Moses in Exodus chapter 4. Uh, the king of Israel was called God, little g, in contrast to Almighty God in Psalm 45, 6. There's reasonable evidence that this is speaking of human rulers. There's also reasonable evidence that it may be speaking of demonic spirits who are behind the human rulers who are wicked. We know that Satan's fallen angels have access to heaven with Satan, uh, thus potentially this reference to this divine counsel, and so maybe we're headed in the right direction. But the idea here is very simple. In either case, whether it's human or demonic or a combination of both, somebody is called a god, little g, because they're in a position of authority and power in a godlike sense. God even told Moses that I will make you as God to Pharaoh. That there's some power there. We understand that. That's not difficult to understand. Judges in the Old Testament are called gods, little g, because they determine the fate of people. But Heiser builds a whole different and completely unorthodox view from this tiny bit of evidence. On page 11 of his book, he states, quote, The God of the Old Testament was part of an assembly, a pantheon of other gods. That's polytheism. And by the way, that's way closer to Mormonism than it is to Orthodox Christianity. And the funny part is the, the Mormons say, hey, we don't know this guy. Even the Mormons don't want anything to do with him. Why does he start his own school of theology? Because no one else wants him. He states that he has discovered the key to the whole Bible, which the entirety of the evangelical community, including 2,000 years of Bible scholars, somehow missed. One reviewer wrote this, and, and forgive me for a long quote, but this is important. Quote, As Heiser attempted to interpret the meaning of this verse, his emerging view apparently received virtually no support from conservative theologians, and rightly so. And he found it necessary to look beyond evangelical scholarship, which he had believed ignored his newly discovered key. In the process, Heiser scrapped his former reliance on systematic theology, along with creeds, confessions, and denominational preferences, which had filtered out and rejected his new discovery. Translation, all of Orthodox Christianity said, you're nuts. I keep going. And he went about putting the pieces together himself. Heiser writes, We need to lay our theological systems aside, answer these questions, this is important, like an ancient Israelite would have, and embrace the results. It's time to peel these layers away. In essence, Heiser believes he has discovered truth that virtually everyone else has missed. And so it's an indefensible position. There's a second thing that he adds to his view, though, that he believes in a different translation of Genesis 1.1. Our translation here in the ESV says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And he cites a, a Hebrew scholar named Robert Homestead. Robert Homestead basically says that every Old Testament Hebrew scholar for the past 2,000 years has gotten Genesis 1.1 wrong. He gives a long, convoluted argument. I, I read it in detail. I read everything that Homestead's read about this. I'm a fairly intelligent guy. I get to the end. I'm like, what are you talking about? 
It basically concludes that pretty much every translator for 2,000 years has gotten it wrong. And so Dr. Heiser quotes Homestead in saying that the correct translation of Genesis 1-1 is in the beginning period of time or in the beginning period that God created the heavens and the earth. Now you might say, well, that doesn't matter that much. The reason that is important is because Heiser also comes to the conclusion that Genesis 1-1 is not the beginning. That matter, the heavens and the earth, already existed and then God began His creating work with matter that was already there. He gives a long video lecture on this and he asserts that asking the obvious question, quote, then where did that matter come from? He says, quote, is a pointless question. That's actually the only question you should be asking. (laughs) By the way, if you look at that video, it's at 29 minutes and 50 seconds. So he says that's a pointless question. He says that a, a modern Western thinker is incapable of truly understanding the real meaning of Genesis 1. In other words, none of you can understand the Bible because you weren't born in Iraq or in Israel. And that you didn't live 3,000 years ago. That we don't think like an ancient Israelite. We aren't ancient enough and we aren't Jewish enough. All that then leads to the conclusion that a day in Genesis 1 doesn't really mean a day that God used material that comes from who knows where to create everything. Meaning, by the way, that Heiser is going along with the worldly notion of millions and billions of years and that every day of creation was actually long ages. You know how many people believe that before 1850? Zero. In responding to this view, Answers in Genesis wrote a lengthy rebuttal. Let me just read one portion to you. Quote, Heiser expects us to reject the work of all the Orthodox Christian scholars who have had an excellent knowledge of Hebrew and who have translated Genesis 1-1 as an absolute beginning. Instead, he wants us to accept Robert Homestead's arrogant view on the matter, even though Homestead got his undergraduate Bible training at a Bible college where no Bible teacher took Genesis as literal history and did his graduate and PhD studies at secular schools, where he also had no Bible-believing Orthodox Christian professors, and now he teaches at a secular university. Sorry, neither Dr. Holmstead nor Dr. Michael Heiser will be the Hebrew quote-unquote authorities that we bow the knee to. We're sticking with the exegetically sound Orthodox Christian and Orthodox Jewish translation and interpretation of Genesis 1.1. I'm a big believer in being fair and examining some of these views, so let's hold on just for a minute here. Heiser has said that you really need to be able to think like a Jew to understand Genesis 1. That you need to think like someone really immersed in the Hebrew language and culture. Okay, let's do that. Let's get, for example, 70 translators, writers, editors, and Semitic language experts with PhDs from Harvard, Princeton, Duke, Southern Methodist University, Dallas Theological Seminary, Fuller Theological Seminary, Moody Bible Institute, Trinity University, Talbot Theological Seminary, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and many more. All of them have one goal, that is to think and translate with pinpoint literal accuracy like a Jew. Well, that's exactly what the Messianic Jewish Family Bible Society did in 2014. They released the Tree of Life version 
that is meant to really, really show Jewish thought in the translation. Even with the books of the Old Testament arranged in the order of the Jewish Bible, a lot of other distinctly Jewish features. It's a, it's a neat translation. What did they come up with Genesis 1-1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Same as the Bible as you hold in your hand. And what did they come up with Psalm 82 one Quote, God takes his stand in the assembly of God. He judges among the quote-unquote gods. The quote-unquote is in their translation because it it reflects the orthodox view that God is not merely part of a pantheon of multiple gods. In fact, the rest of Psalm 82 tells the story. God is judging those who would pretend to be gods. Now, by my count, Six pages ago in my notes, I told you I would tell you the purpose of dragging you through that mess. Here's the reason. Do you see the wisdom of have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths? That mess did nothing except create doubt, create uncertainty. What is Michael Heiser doing? He's undermining belief in the very truths that anchor our souls. He's ignoring the obvious evidence that the Hebrew word for day means 24 hours every time it's numbered on the first day, on the second day, on the third day. That we live a seven-day week based on what? A seven-day creation. How about this instead of silly myths? John 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Isn't that a feast of truth instead of spiritual junk food of old wives' tales? First way to lead by example, feast on the truth. Second, stop eating spiritual junk food. Third way to lead by example, train for eternity. Train for eternity. Now, I told you that that you might pick up on a theme If you're picking up on a health metaphor, you would be correct. The first two are basically eat right. And now we get to training. Verse 7 again, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. What does it mean to train yourself for godliness? Paul uses this word only in the pastoral epistles, godliness. And it always has the idea of the outward evidence of a genuine internal faith. That's what godliness is, of living a life characterized by obedience to the Lord. Now, the English word train, we see it in English for the second time already in this text. In verse 6, there's an altogether different word here in verse 7, though. Here in verse 7, this is the word we, we get our word gymnasium. The shortened version, of course, is gym. I hate to tell you this, if the owners of the various gyms in town knew what this word really meant in Greek, they might think up a different name. Because this word means, I didn't make it up, exercise naked. (laughs) You say exercise naked. Now in our culture, we say that's going to get you arrested, as it should. (laughs) But it's a word used to refer to the practice of an athlete in the Greco-Roman world where apparently there were no Nike or Adidas clothing endorsements. Why does Paul use this word? All all fun aside here, the the idea is that a really serious athlete didn't try to run around in a robe and sandals. He was unencumbered. He was undistracted. 
It's the idea of maximizing your opportunity to achieve your goals. To put it in terms we would understand, Paul is saying, train yourself for godliness with the same lack of distraction and total complete focus that a professional athlete would use for a sport. Let's connect Timothy's example to the average church member. What is Timothy's example? Being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine. And what's the focus? What's the intensity of this training? No distractions, total focus. I'd like to apply this to you and to me in two ways. The first way, I want to tell you something to stop doing. And the second way, I want to tell you something to start doing. One thing to stop doing. Stop looking for spiritual shortcuts. Stop looking for spiritual shortcuts. Give you some examples. I know that devotional guides have a place and they have value. But it's a little taste of truth in three minutes. That's not a replacement for a meal. It's just an appetizer. Another example, there is no single Christian book that contains the secret to spiritual success and maturity. There's not one. There's lots of them that will help, but not one makes the whole case. How about this one? I believe it is the quest for spiritual shortcuts that leads Christians to value little sermonettes for Christian nets because heaven forbid we show up to church and engage our minds. There are no spiritual shortcuts. Have you ever seen a professional athlete who said, yeah, when I was 12, I drank this particular drink, I turned into Superman, and now I make $5 million a year? No shortcuts. You have the Bible. You have prayer. You have the preached word. You have the fellowship of the body. That's one thing to stop doing. Stop looking for spiritual shortcuts. They don't exist. And one thing to start doing to, as Paul would say, exercise naked, to train yourself for godliness Here's the one thing. Pick your weakest area of obedience and attack it. Pick your weakest area of obedience and attack it. Is your problem greed? Is your problem pride? Is it lust? Is it fear? Are you afraid of everything? Is your problem a sharp tongue? Is your problem gossip? Is is your problem that you're unsubmissive as a wife? Is your problem that you're harsh and impatient as a husband? Is your problem selfishness? Is your problem fear of commitment to the local church? Identify it and attack it. Scripture memory. Prayer every day. Accountability with your spouse or a fellow believer or two or three or five. Read three helpful books this month. Fast and pray if necessary. Create your own Bible study on the topic. Attack. A few years ago, a dear brother in the Lord who lives in a different city, he called me. He has since gone home to be with the Lord, but he called me. This is as godly a man as you'll ever encounter. He had been through some surgeries and now he was addicted to these high-powered pain medications. And he called me because he he said, "I, I know you never thought you would hear this from me, but my family came and told me you're a drug addict. And he said something like this. I'm going to attack this thing. I'm going to murder this sin. I'm going to destroy this. I'm going to stomp this thing out. And I need your help. And he said, I'm asking you along with, and he named about five other men, to hold my feet to the fire on this and be willing to confront me. I'm asking you to be willing to move me out of my house if I won't deal with this because it's hurting my wife. I'm memorizing these particular verses right now. And he listed like 50 
I'm spending this much time in prayer every day just for this issue. I have made my wife and all of my adult children aware and they are helping me. I have made my grandchildren aware. I have told them that, that grandpa is a drug addict. And here's my practical plan to quit. And he went through all the steps he's going to go through. And he said, I've identified how this has become idolatry in my life and I want you to call me on it. That's training for godliness. That's exercising naked. Because he put aside everything else. He said, this is what I'm going to do. And you know what he did? He sat in a chair and he said, I'm not giving up until I don't want those pills anymore. And he sat there for days. And he talked to me on the phone. And he called me a couple weeks later and said, haven't had one and I'm good. He never touched another one and then he went home to heaven a number of years later. But you might say, well, I, I don't feel I have a problem like that. Then attack the problem of pride. <laughs> but why do we call this point, this way of leading by example, training for eternity? We haven't even gotten to that part yet. Look at verse 8. This is the most stunning thing in this passage in my mind, just for me. Verse 8. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Well, what's he saying? Paul's giving this illustration. Bodily training, exercise, or taking care of yourself is of some value. Why is it only of some value? Because you're going to die, right? By the way, this says that quitting a gym membership is not a sin. So it doesn't make any difference. You can be as healthy as you want and you're still going to die. Before my dad was killed in a car accident, he was walking, he was exercising, he took more vitamins than I've ever seen anybody take and he was working at being healthy. And then God had a 16-year-old kid cross four lanes of traffic and my dad went home. It's of some value. But watch this. Training for godliness has value in the present life and he says, and in the life to come. This is stunning. The spiritual training you're undertaking right now, training given by God through suffering, through pain, through agony, through learning the Word of God, through hearing the preached Word of God, through times of intense prayer, through times of mortifying sin, times of discipline, times of attacking your own spiritual weaknesses, these efforts carry into eternity. Yes, you will be made like Christ. Romans 8 promises this. But your sanctification now has impact in the life to come. What do we mean by this? You remember the parable of the talents in Matthew 25 that we used to kick this series off. The servants were given talents, a large sum of money. And when the master returned what they did with those talents determined their responsibilities at the end of time when he returns. Matthew 25, 23, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. In other words, Paul has just promised that you will receive benefit in the life to come from the spiritual discipline, even the suffering, even the pain, that you are faithfully enduring now. You know what that tells me? 
those of you who are mortifying sin, those of you who are suffering, those of you who are being crushed by life, crushed by your health, crushed by circumstances, crushed by everything around you, and you're just trying to crawl to the finish line, we will be serving you in the life to come because you'll be the ones in charge. Because whatever sanctification you go through now carries over. That's stunning. And just to make sure Paul knows we understand this because you get to the end of verse 8 and you go, seriously? That's that's shocking. Just to make sure, verse 9, the saying, what I just said, is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. He's saying you need to believe this. And look at the level of effort Paul is talking about while he uses the metaphor of training, unencumbered, and with total focus. Verse 10, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. It means particularly or specifically of those who believe. Key words in verse 10, We toil, we strive. Let me make this easy. I want to challenge you to take one week of your life, coincidentally, tomorrow is Monday, to take one week of your life and instead of all the entertainment and self-pleasing activities that you may do, spend at least one half of that time in the next week attacking that one sin. Or attacking your sanctification by spending that much time in prayer. Or attacking your mind which wanders so easily to worldly things by reading more Bible in one week than you ever have, ever. I want to challenge you to do this, and in fact, I'm going to look forward to emails from some of you one week from tomorrow on the impact that this had on your training for godliness. It's something you do on purpose. The first way to lead by example, feast on the truth. Second, stop eating spiritual junk food. Third, train for eternity. And then fourth, and this really becomes a foregone conclusion, Be worth imitating. Be worth imitating. Verse 12. Paul tells Timothy, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. The lesson for Timothy was, if anybody tries to put you down for being youthful, he's probably about 40, which you might not feel is that youthful, but it's actually very young for a man sent to turn around an entire church that's in trouble. But Paul says, shut all mouths by setting an example. Be a man your people want to imitate. And the lesson is the same for us. And Paul gives him five areas of life to watch and to be worth imitating in. The first one, we'll just call his words. He says, set the believers an example in speech. We get a wonderful admonition from the Apostle Paul in Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. That's our goal. Don't you love to speak with older believers that you can tell they take the five seconds to think before they open their mouth? First, his words. Second, his conduct. That he conducts himself as one changed by the power of the gospel. And could I ask this? To all of you who know Christ, why are you eager to look like the world? Why would you be eager to talk like the world? Why would you be eager to identify with the world? The world already thinks you're a weirdo. You may as well just embrace it. You can't please the world, and what's the payoff if you do? Oh, wow, you look just like me. You talk just like me. You act just like me. I think I'll come to faith in Jesus Christ so that 
I can keep being just as worldly as you are. Instead, do what Paul said to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 1.12, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so towards you. His words, his conduct, the third way Timothy was to set an example, his care of others, his care of others. Paul says, set the believers an example in love. Who are you loving? Who are you doing things for that expresses love? This is the the classic Greek word for love, agape, which is active, sacrificial love, love that costs, love that is not free. When somebody says, I I just want to be a part of the church, but I don't want to really serve, it's a bad example. You get a bunch of those, and you have a church that's completely ineffective. His words, his conduct, his care of others. Fourth way he's to set an example is faith. His faith. It means that Timothy is to set an example of living by faith, of not panicking, of believing the sovereignty of God. Let me put it this way. Of living now as if you have all the answers that you'll get later. That's what it means to live by faith. Of living in confidence regardless of circumstances rather than wasting your life in fear and anxiety and crying over silly things. Yes, we weep and yes, we grieve, but you still have an abiding certainty in the Lord. And the fifth way Timothy was to set an example is in his purity. He wants Timothy and by extension all of us to be working on the unseen person. The person that only God sees to work on the very innermost thoughts and motives of our hearts because ultimately what is on the inside will come out on the outside. Jesus made that very clear. But let me give you two examples. Maybe you've learned not to gossip. Maybe you've gotten out of the habit of saying terrible things about other people. But let me ask you this. Have you started disciplining yourself to stop thinking those things in the first place? That's purity. Or how about this? Men, maybe you've learned to stop ogling women, but have you disciplined yourself to stop it in your mind? That's purity. That's an example. It's a very, very simple question. Is your Christian life one that ought to be imitated? Or is it a caution for others to avoid? Is your Christian life one that ought to be imitated or is it one that serves as a caution for others to avoid? In other words, is there a a pursuit? Is there a quest? Is there a, a hunt? Is there a training? Is there a search for godliness that never stops? Is the thought of giving up five hours in one week of a bunch of less important things in order to seek God, does that feel like too much? If you own an iPhone, what does your iPhone do every week? It tells you your average screen time, doesn't it? You ought to take that as an admonition from God Himself. (laughs) Multiply it by seven, give it up, and pursue God that much. Just try it once. That's not anything for us to do. Jesus didn't give up five hours to seek you. He gave up his life to seek and to save that which was lost. That's you. Now, I have to be very clear about this. I'm speaking to you as believers, but please do not be mistaken. I have not been talking about earning your way into a right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's impossible. 
Spiritual discipline, spiritual training is for those who have humbled themselves and repented of sin and come to faith in Christ. If you're not in Christ, all those attempts at spiritual discipline will not only fail you, but they'll be pointless because you cannot please God outside of Christ. Romans 3.12 says, No one does good, not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In verse 23, If the only example you're setting right now is an example of how to fake your way through being around other Christians and being around the church, but having never submitted, never repented to the Lord, I would give the same plea, I would give the same warning that John the Baptist gave the religious and the fake Pharisees. He said in Matthew 3, verse 10, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The God has an axe in his hand and he's ready to cut down all the trees that don't bear true spiritual fruit. And so take the invitation that Peter gave on the very first day of the church of Jesus Christ. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. And for all who are in Christ, once again I ask the question, it's a very simple question, is your Christian life one that ought to be imitated? I wish mine was to the point that I want it to be, but I'm not there yet. I know my disappointments. You know yours. But I would repeat my challenge to you. I challenge you to take one week of your life and instead of all the entertainment, all the self-pleasing activities that you do, take one half of that time attacking one sin or attacking your sanctification by spending that time in prayer or attacking your mind which wanders so easily to worldly things, perhaps by reading more Bible in one week than you ever have in your whole life. I look forward to those emails one week from tomorrow. My email address is easily accessible and I will look forward to those. Why do you want to set an example? If you're a believer in Christ, you want to because the Lord Jesus has set the ultimate example. He is an example of unconditional love. And he loved you by giving himself as a sacrifice for you. And so I'd like to transition our time now to the Lord's table. Would you pray with me for just a moment? Our Father, we we come now eager to obey But now, Lord, we are eager to remember you, to remember Christ. And we think about, Lord, how much the Lord Jesus suffered, not just to set an example, though, Lord, so much more than that. He was a substitute sacrifice for sin. He paid the price that we could not pay. And so, Lord, now, in in really the ultimate act of Christian worship, we would remember Christ. He alone is the focus of this moment. And we pray, Lord, for the sobriety, the the somberness that this moment demands to remember the death of the Holy One, the Holy One of Israel, the King of all the kings, the Lord of all the lords, who came down from His glory in heaven to the one, as the one person who could save us, the one person who could meet us at our point of need. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.